that's gone from a movement about empowering um, women to one that is much more about <laughs> what's the right word? Sex. <laughs> Welcome to Divided States of Women from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Liz Plank, and if you know anything about me, you may know that I am a pretty big feminist, but what you might not know about me is that I hang out, I have Republican friends, okay? I hang out with, I dabble with conservatives. <laughs> Sometimes. And I'm one of them, right? Hi. Hey. Hi, everyone. I'm Heatha Herzog, and I am a retail analyst, business owner, and boom, a boom. Republican. And yes, we are friends, but we we don't always agree, no, right? we're on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Yeah. So we get into some brawls verbally, and that was sort of the inspiration for the show, right? Um, so during the 2016 election, we both became really frustrated with— the way that women were talked about in the news, right? The so-called women vote or the women block. If you want to know if something is sexist, you just replace the word women with men and you see immediately how ridiculous it would sound. So dumb. Another issue in the spotlight this week, women voters. To check in on that crucial voting block and what's driving the thinking of women voters right now this battling year. over we're that all-important female vote. The Clinton campaign continuing to dog Trump on his past criticism. did not care that Hillary Clinton could be the first woman president. In fact, several of them were offended. I think we both figured that it was just really annoying the way that women were represented, the way that women were talked about, Mm -hmm. and we need to flip the script on that somehow. Totally. Because you know what? At the end of the day, women fix shit. Like men mess it up. And then we come in and we fix it. For the most part, yes. And and we're going to shed a light on that. And we're just going to fix, like, we're, we're going to attack this like a Nike of furniture. We're just going to assemble it. Like we're going to reassemble America. I'm excited about the fact that we are going to speak about women in the multifaceted, complex way um, that, that they truly are and all of the identities that they inhabit. There's just so many different sides to us. And for some reason, <laughs> we have to keep explaining that. Yeah to the man. Um, now, Liz, you went to a conservative conference. Oh, my God. I did. I, re- I did. How did I that went go? to Texas. Oh, my gosh. I went to the Marriott in Dallas, Texas. And you didn't consult with me without the Dallas. makeup and the... Uh, yeah, I brushed my hair, though, because I know you, you, you've been telling me to do that more. Yeah, so girl. I wanted to fit in. Yeah. Sometimes we all need to brush our hair. You know what was so interesting, though? I actually had a really good time. I actually had a really good time. I met so many different women. Obviously, there were some women that I just wasn't on the same page with. Do you think that the feminist movement, if the feminist movement was less focused on sexuality, you would feel more inclined to join it? Honestly, I think if they were more inclusive of conservative women, I would be more inclined to join it. And if they backed off on sexuality, because there is no way I am going to a women's march and wearing a hat with a genital on it they're wearing hats with genitals on them yeah the pink hats uh just google it because i don't think i'm allowed to say this on camera 
<laughs> so if they if they don't have the hats, then you would feel more included. So so I I spoke to to some women who said you know they uh, were rejecting pro life uh, conservative women, and that's why they felt excluded. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I saw that on Fox News too. There was a whole um, organization of pro life conservative feminists, and they were completely rejected from the women's march. And that's just ridiculous. That's it's completely against the First Amendment, honestly. So I'm, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I think it's not against the First Amendment not to let people march in your movement. I think she's more concerned with the fact that they just feel excluded. Mm. I mean, we are all women. So why can't women of all beliefs and uh, facets of femininity and feminism join the same feminist march and movement. But I don't think feminism is, the definition of of feminism is not necessarily like supporting all women equally, whatever they believe in. Like, I actually think that, you know, feminism is supporting women who support women. (laughs) I mean, that's my, that's how I see it. Sure. And being actively pro-life and actively fighting against the rights that women have um, fought for and 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 need in order to be autonomous members of society, I, I think is anti-feminist. And so that's the reason why there was some reluctance. Like, pro-life women weren't uh, banned from the march. Like, they were allowed to march. They just weren't allowed to be sponsors um, because I— and, 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 I, and I get it. This is, like, an interesting and important debate to have. Um, but I think that it's important to stand for something. It's important to have principles. But what Or else does, you're not a movement. But I think that's what the problem is, Liz, is that the feminist movement, it, it doesn't really stand for anything because it is so shattered. Yeah, and I heard a lot of women talk about this, about, you know, them being turned off by more sort of radical faction of the progressive movement or the fem- feminist movement. And, uh, I, you know, I can sort of understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, you know, progressives are also turned off by conservatives from the more radical uh, portions of their movement, right? I mean, very recently, we saw that unfold in Charlottesville, um, where a lot of young people who were wearing Make America Great Again hats, um, who also happened to be Nazis and, you know, murdered a woman and drove a car into a crowd of people and did very violent, awful things. And yes, some conservatives called them out and said, these people don't represent us. Right, like me. But you're top man didn't um right but that is that speaks to what is happening in the republican party right now which is they don't know what is going on and as someone who has been voting a voting republican since i was 18 years old in several elections i don't identify with what is happening in the republican party however there are people that don't identify with my type of republican partiness or republicanness and say we need something new and a breath of fresh air that's more tea party and more extreme I think what's happening right now, what we're witnessing with feminism and women who vote conservative is that it's this identity crisis that's happening. It's going to happen. We're going to see it break down. And then we're going to come up with a whole new identity for the Republican Party. I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. So back to that young conservative women's conference I went to. Just so I understand correctly, you're pro-life. So you you would never get an abortion or would never do it, but you're okay if other women have abortions? My view is I believe that... Your decision starts the second that you decide to have sex, unless that choice is taken away in like a rape situation. But I understand the emotional damage that that comes along with it, because that is a 
really hard, tough emotional situation that I have seen women get driven to suicide because of it, and I would hate to lose a woman's right for something that was not her choice. Just to, to keep talking about this, um, do you think that we, you know, pro-choice and pro-lifers basically agree on a lot of things? Um, I think we do agree on a lot of things, like um, life is sacred, you know? I think life is precious and everybody else does, like um, pro-choice is that woman's life is precious, you know? She needs to have financial stability, she needs to have that family support, and um, that's where they stand, but um, the more staunchly pro-life areas are, um, you know, the children, you have to think about the children, you have to think about the people that don't have a voice, so I think we do agree on a lot of basic points, and even in other situations too, like there are a lot of things we agree on, we just go about it in different ways. I feel like being pro-life is like this badge of honor that everyone wants to have because it's like somehow morally superior. But when you start asking questions about their position, it starts to become evident that they're not so locked into that position. So, you know, this particular woman is making exceptions for certain cases of, you know, emotional hardship for rape and incest. And I appreciate that. But if you are, if you do think abortion is murder, then like, why is it okay in certain cases? I'll and tell you. It, it basically exposes that some women deserve a right to why. abortion and some women don't. Because really the problem is, especially with the Republican Party, is that for better or for worse, it's very rooted in religious beliefs. But it's 2017, and we live in a more liberal society. So I think what you're hearing, especially from these young women, these young conservative women, is this um, them trying to come to terms with their religious background and their upbringing of being conservative, and therefore always been told, yeah. you're not supposed to have an abortion. No, no, no. Which Abortions uh, are bad. Ergo is, translates yeah. to, I am pro-life. And yet I live in 2017 where stuff happens and your friend may have gotten drunk at a party and gotten raped, unfortunately, sexually assaulted, raped, has a child now and she's 16 years old and you're seeing that in front of your face and you think, oh my God, my best friend, this would happen to her. So right. how do you marry that as a young person? Right. That's what we're seeing here. Right. And I think it's what would really be interesting about the Republican Party is if they took that into consideration as they start molding what the new Republican Party looks like. Some of the most interesting conversations that I had was with women who I had one conversation about which wave of feminism they identified with. And they kept sort of re referring back to the first wave or the second wave. And I was like, you know, that's like the racist. Like that's like the part of feminism. Like we like have progressed to a being more inclusive and, and, and I think much better movement. This whole third wave stuff that's going on, I really don't identify with that. What don't you like about the third wave? Like, it's just, I've, I've heard that a lot just today. Like, the third wave seems like it's turning a lot of people off. Like, what words come to mind when I say third wave feminism? Something that I deal with a lot, I'm from Columbus, which is super LGBT friendly. Um, I don't personally agree with like just walking around naked and like, I know it's like anti-objectifying, but walking around like that and like, I don't know. That's just not my thing. And it makes other people uncomfortable. And I have, um, my little brother is trans. So I love the LGBT community and it's not, I'm not a homophobe or a xenophobe or any of that, but, um, it just, there are things like we can't push our beliefs on you. So when you are like aggressive verbally and physically and things like that, like to us, it just, it's a little 
disheartening, I guess, you know, and it's harder to understand your side when we feel a little bit more attacked. I mean, the third wave of feminism technically is uh, intersectionality. Um, well, I'm not really big on buzzwords. Would you mind like kind of defining intersectionality? Yeah. Well, so yeah, intersectionality basically means, um, so the first and the second wave was more like, okay, women, you know, we want to get, get more rights and we want women to have more opportunities. And the third wave was like a recognition that every woman's experience is different. Um, and so your experience is different from your experience, from my experience, and from, you know, a, a trans person's experience. Basically, like a more inclusive, uh, diverse uh, perspective on women's experience, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, if you were trans and I didn't know, I wouldn't treat you any differently. And then if you tell me you're trans, obviously I'm not going to care. I have a little brother who's trans. If you're, if you were gay and you told me I wouldn't care, I have gay sorority sisters. You know, I feel like people label conservatives a lot like, oh, you're a conservative, so um, you're racist, you're a homophobe, you hate gay people. And like, that's what really drives the chasm open because a lot of that specifically, like in the younger generations, that just isn't true anymore. The problem with third wave feminism is that people aren't really projecting that message. We're seeing these marches, we're seeing all these events happening but they're not really telling us what they're about. So we're interpreting what we see on the media and that's only what the media chooses to show us. And that's what the issue is. If someone was to be like, hey, well, exactly how you explained it. Like I understood that a lot more than any of the marches that have happened in the past year. Does that mean I'm the conservative whisperer? I, I just feel like that's, that's way too much. That's way too much responsibility. I'm not ready for this role. All of the voices that you've heard in this segment were attendees of the Young Women's Leadership Summit organized by Turning Point USA. Thank you to Juliana Colley from Salt Lake City, Asha Patel from Columbus, she's 19 years old, and Shelly Gonzalez from Texas. So Liz, we are really lucky on this podcast because yeah. we work with, I have an amazing freelance producer, but at some point we are probably going to get need to get another producer to work on the show. And one of the things... And a new host. No, I, I like the host. Really? I, I wouldn't, I I wouldn't put up a posting for the I host. Don't know. I think the host I, is good. I can't vouch Both for the her. hosts are wonderful. I love my job, but mm -hmm. hiring is the one part of my job that gives me a headache. It's right. so difficult to find great talent. Um, and that's why we're telling you about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 or plus job sites with just one click. They have this really powerful technology that'll match the right people to your job better than anyone else. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site, not in a week, not in two weeks, one day. That's one crazy. day turnaround. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes, including small business owners like Heatha, to find the most qualified job candidates and get immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post on ZipRecruiter free. Nothing is free anymore. This is go to ZipRecruiter.com slash divided. What's the code? Divided. Divided. So I am so excited, Heatha, uh, that we are joined by one of my favorite people in the whole universe, uh, Samita Mukhopadhyay, who Yay. is the editor of an amazing book called, let's all say it at the same time, Nasty, Nasty Women. Women. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. We're so excited. Um, so 
As I was reading this book and as I've been sort of thinking through what we've learned from the 2016 election, I think that we've like thought a lot about what the Democratic Party has learned, what the Republican Party has learned about what they need to change, what they need to do differently. So what does it mean to run for president as a woman? What's the lesson from Hillary? Well, you know, that's a it's a complicated question, right? Because I think one of the things that she's become synonymous with is this horrible moment in history. And so it's it's been really hard to kind of separate like what about, you know, what happened to her was specifically because of gender or this kind of like historical moment. But I do think there is this kind of impulse to gloss over that her gender played a much bigger role in this than anybody kind of wants to talk about or accept, you know, or acknowledge. And outside of how does she show us that we're ready for like a more progressive woman who's like got perfect politics and right. you know can galvanize the super left and you know or has she shown us that we really have our work cut out for us right. in terms of the way that we see kind of women in leadership and and you know that like women can kind of break and are shattering like every glass ceiling except the kind of biggest one, the highest office in in the country. Well so I just want to interrupt you there for a second. I kind of feel like it's almost Maybe we do need someone that can galvanize the left. I mean, it's clear that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have real problems. And, you know, Liz and I have talked about this a lot. I, You know, as much as we want to think that it had everything to do with gender and people just didn't like Hillary Clinton, maybe the real issue, too, is the fact that she couldn't galvanize the extreme left and the, the working class vote in a way that Bernie Sanders could. Again, I, I think it's complicated. So I do think that there was a problem with her galvanizing the left. I just think we need to really look at why that was, right? And, you know, even with the poor, if you look at the exit data, the actual, like, the lowest rung of poor voters did actually vote for Hillary. Um, and it was really, like, what Trump voters had in common, more so than class, was education or, like, access to education. And so I do think that there is... A conver- like a national conversation that has to happen around internalized misogyny and 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 the fact that not only did not only did Hillary lose and potentially couldn't galvanize the left and kind of what some of those reasons were, but the fact that she lost to the one of the most misogynistic candidates we've ever seen, right? And so it was literally this battle of good and evil around the issue of gender. So maybe the conversation is this in, this internal misogyny. Maybe the com- maybe that really has to do with. I mean, let's be honest, presidential candidates get elected because they're likable. Yeah. Yeah. And and Hillary Clinton has actually uh, spoken a lot about that. And there's studies supporting that, that as a man becomes more powerful, he he is more likable or as likable. And for a woman, there's an inverse correlation there. And I think that's like a really interesting question. You know, we've seen Donald Trump become president. Like it's actually it's a normal thing now, but it's kind of insane that a person who didn't have experience in politics didn't have experience and never held public office was able to get to the highest office. And Ezra um, Klein, who's the editor of Vox interviewed Hillary and asked her this question, you know, does it mean that anyone can run for president? But does it mean, does, does that apply to women? You know, like, are can any woman run for president? Uh, can Kim Kardashian run for president? Or then women, you know, have to prove more because they are women. I think if Kim Kardashian ran for president, people would think that she's not smart enough to be president, whereas for Donald Trump, 
maybe that didn't wasn't as important. Oh my god, that's so true. People would not think she would be smart enough to yeah, be president. That's when not, she's I don't like, agree with you, ladies. But yeah. go ahead. Why do you no, think? No, but that? I, I think like Oprah could run for president, and people would be like, she's smart, and she could, you know, like I, I, I think I think it's hard to like kind of generalize a little bit. You know, I, I do think Hillary is such a specific construction of this moment and her history, and it was just like such a collusion of things. Um, you know, but I do think that the broader lesson of like, yeah, women have to try twice as hard to get half as far, and I just think that's the truth. And, and you know, you know, she was criticized for like not being feminine enough. And it's like, well, if you lean into your femininity as a leader and, you know, you are sometimes rewarded for that, but you always end up in supporting positions. Like it's very rare that if you really lean into like a feminine leadership style that right. ends you up as like the CEO or, you know, like maybe you end up like the VP right. <laughs> to the CEO, you know? Right. Um, and I do think that, but then when you have like a more of a masculine leadership style, you know, then people are like, oh, she's insufferable and she's a bitch and, you know, she's all these things. And that re that's really what happened with Hillary. And the interesting thing is I think the likability question with her has been the most fascinating and it's interesting because, like, I'm not even, like, I obviously, like, voted for Hillary Clinton and can now openly say that because I don't work in any media outlet <laughs> and I'm no longer representing any media outlet. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I, I think it is complicated and I, I write about that in the book that, you know, there are many reasons that very, very good reasons that people on the left had criticisms of her and previous policies and, and previous things that she had been involved in. Um but that said, I've heard she's an unbelievably likable person in yeah. real life, actually. Yeah. Like, I've heard she's unbelievably warm. She's a tiny human. She's like 5'2 or 5'3, yeah. right? And she's like a grandma. And I'm like, <laughs> if, you know, Grandma Clinton is not likable, like, what does likable mean then? Right. I, I just don't know. Do you think well, ageism also plays a part, though? Yes. Because I also think that we've talked a lot about the sexism part, but there's the ageism part. An old man. Donald Trump is an old man, right? Um, but we don't, you know, he doesn't have less value because he is old. And I think for Hillary, it was this like, she's like my mom or she's like my grandma. She's like shrill. Her voice is annoying. And I, I'm really interested in having that conversation about, you know, would Hillary Clinton been more electable if she had been 20 years younger? Ladies, putting on good underwear in the morning is a key part of owning your day. Good underwear helps you feel confident, powerful, sexy, and ready to conquer the world, as you should. It all starts with the first thing you put on. It all starts with a great pair. Great of pair of underwear on your ass. Because if you don't have underwear, you know what I did until I was six years, six or seven years old. Every morning, my mom had to. When I would come down for breakfast, she would she would tell me, "Are you wearing your underwear?" <laughs> and I'd be like, "Yes." And she'd be like. Show Can me. I check? And, I, and then I'd go back up because I yeah. would. You're I like, hated oh, underwear, and now I love underwear because I have MeUndies. I no, I do love them. My favorite pair has donuts on them, and one of the pairs has pizzas on That's it. Cute. And they I have, feel like it's very oh, on brand. They I, have donuts yeah. and pizza. I don't underwear? know. If they, I feel like they just made them for me, That's but adorable. I think you can order those. Um, I mean, the best underwear is the underwear you can't feel um, and you don't think about. Like six-year-old you would have said. Exactly. That's what six-year-old you wanted was MeUndies. Yeah, six-year-old Liz would have loved some MeUndies. I feel like a lot of my issues could have been overcome if if my mom had ordered MeUndies. I think people should order them for themselves yes. and see if we're lying. Yeah. And send me pics on Twitter. Don't DM them. It's only cool if it's public. Then it's not weird. If you email tweeting me pictures of your tweeting pictures of your underwear. Only do it. Yeah, actually, I, I take that back. I don't know if you I take want, that back. You might not want yeah. photo proof in photo this proof. case. I mean, maybe if they wore it over their like jeggings. Yes. So send me photos yeah. of you wearing meundies over over other clothes. There you go. Super excited about that. And if you don't like them, 
you can get your money back, right? Yeah, it's a hundred percent satisfaction guarantee. There you go. And right now, MeUndies has an exclusive offer for divided Swiss women listeners. Just for you guys. Just for you. You can get twenty percent off, and and you get free shipping. And if you don't like them, you get your money back. I don't even know why. If you're not ordering underwear right now, what are you doing? It's a no-brainer, dude. To get your 20% off free shipping and their 100% satisfaction guarantee and get the best and softest underwear you will ever own, go to meundies.com slash divided. That's our special code. Divided. Divided. Don't let your, don't let your. As in don't get divided from these underwear. Exactly. Don't ever get divided and you'll be fine. Use a special divider in your drawers Mm -hmm. to keep these underwear separate from all the mediocre underwears that are in there. I love how much we use the word divided. Uh, I feel feel like we've maximized it. Remember, that's your code. Divided. Another thing that I wanted to touch on is uh, another part of uh, what you talk about in the book, which is identity politics. And that also comes back to the sort of lessons of the 2016 election. And I just want to read this this excerpt that I thought was was so uh, profound and, and great. Um, Whereas the experiences of people of color marked as non-standard, white identity, white concerns, sensitivities, anxieties is taken as representative of the whole. Anything that deviates from that identity is diversity or difference. In practice, it is impossible to have a liberal politics devoid of identity. To eschew uh, identity politics is to ignore the experiences and concern of a vast uh, segment of American society. Um, Does identity politics, why don't we recognize identity politics when it's for white people? Yeah, because I think that is considered the default identity. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and now, you know, you're seeing more calls of like, recognizing the white working class. Like, I I do think that, like, there is one thing that we are seeing on the right, obviously, is this, like, growing tribalism around whiteness. And, you know, but it's not necessarily seen as whiteness because of privilege. It's seen as, like, a white, like, waning majority that's, like, in need of support and help. And, um, you know, and and you kind of see those calls from the left and the right. So, yeah, I I do think that it's... it has historically been considered the default identity. And and I don't necessarily want to, like, fault people that don't have master's degrees in, like, ethnic studies. You know, like, right. like I feel like people don't understand identity politics and it's kind of become this um, – it's kind of just become this like catch all phrase for like people of color involved or like right. black lives matter. <laughs> it's like identity politics, right? When it's a much more complicated kind of really robust um kind of both academic and and kind of political movement, right? right? And and so I think I think decentralizing white identity and really looking at identity in all the different ways we kind of embrace it in kind of like more intersectional ways just opens up possibilities for us to really like if you think about welfare reform like if you don't think about race when you're talking about welfare reform like how do you even talk about welfare reform right or if you talk about incarceration rates and you remove race from the conversation you're not going to have come up with as effective policy solutions if you don't include that in the conversation and I think that's what identity politics is but it's just become this like it's something else now. Right. And also the leader of the, Re- the Republican Party came out talking about race, yeah. talking about Mexicans being rapists and talking about a wall. That was his biggest promise and, and the, the thing that his supporters talked about the most to me, at least, when I uh, interviewed them. And so and, – and then you have you know, some nice people and neo-Nazis, right? Like the party, you know, who is supposed to be anti-identity politics has, has sort of become the one that talks a lot about it too. 
So uh, there's an essay in your book called Trust the Black Women, which I loved. Um, But I do want to ask you, is it fair to say that Donald Trump and his staff, uh, he himself doesn't, like, include black women? He doesn't trust black women? I mean, he— he has staff members in his White House that are black. And is it wrong for us to sit there and say, well, those are the wrong kind of black women? There's only one kind of black women out there that are the ones that voted for Hillary, and all the other ones are totally wrong. And is it anti-feminist to say that? Hmm. I don't know. Republicans love asking this question. <laughs> you know, the I, fallen soldiers. Well, are, I'm also are fallen soldiers you know, in I'm the also, White House. I'm also a woman of color, and I think I I get pinned of you know I say I voted Republican for the last yeah. since I was 18 years old, which has been a, a while that I get placed into this like pack of like, well, you're a you're a bad feminist yeah. because you did this, and actually I'm not. You know, I'm I'm mm-hmm. I consider myself a feminist just like everyone else. But my question is, what about the black women in Trump's staff? Are mm-hmm. they bad feminists? Um, yes, because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, just Why? because because he's a bad feminist. Yeah. I mean, he's like the worst well, feminist. Well, that's a weird association, right? don't you think? I mean, that's no, a weird... No, if you're working for the administration So, of ergo, somebody, you're a bad feminist? Of course. Yes. Why is that? Because you are, you are standing by, behind policies in an administration that has repeatedly shown itself to be um, I mean, one of his pet projects is chipping away at women's rights, right? So, um, and even, you know, all things considered, like, he hasn't even, we haven't even seen the worst of it yet, but I do think, you know, the Supreme Court nominations, you know, pose a pose quite a bit of threat for women's rights. And so, yeah, I do, th- I think that when you support policies that aren't feminist, that makes you a bad feminist. So, I, I know that's like a, you know. Okay, so can I ask, can I ask then? Because I, I was a contributor at Fox News, right? And so, uh Am I considered a bad feminist or am I considered bad because I took I, I that was a job that I had and I was providing for my family and he thought that's between you and like the feminist goddesses to to, to <laughs> kind of decide, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you you're a bad feminist or not a bad feminist. I mean, I don't like I am a shit feminist. Like I love rap music, you know, I mean, come on, like whatever. It's complicated. You should see the guys I date. I mean, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> barely yeah. passing the bar for feminists. <laughs> But but what I will say, so I, I just think it's – I think that you – can always point to like the one or two black people in the Trump administration, right? But does that mean that the Trump administration is good for black women? C- coming back to the woman vote, which is sort of the premise for this the the the, the show that we uh, created, how do we complicate that idea of the woman vote? Um, in what women are getting left behind? Uh, yeah. So I I do think that that's what this what one of the best things I've seen since the election is people actually grappling with different subgroups within the women's vote, right? I think going in, everyone was like the single women's vote or, you know, Hillary has the women's vote, which is why the campaign themselves thought that they were going to win. They were like, nailed it. Like all women are good. There's no way all women in this country have not had this shared experience and are going to vote for her. And to all of our surprise, Many, many women did not relate to that experience. Um, and and so, yeah, I, I do think that there is, you know, there has to be a different kind of ground strategy for every single subgroup, right? And I think that, you know, I wouldn't say, I think that like 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton and that makes it look like they were like overwhelmingly enthusiastic about voting for Hillary Clinton. 
in general, like middle class black families have always shown that they're very safe, right, in their in their voting choices, right? So like they would never go for a Bernie, you know, or someone who doesn't feel safe, um, you know, in that way. And and I think that Hillary did a really good job, like you know, kind of in that particular kind of organizing in the black community and, and specifically, at least with middle class and older, not younger necessarily. Um, and so, yeah, so so I think that like it is like we are opening up and really thinking about all the different ways that um, people kind of engage with the political process. What would you advise women to do now? How do they channel their anger? Uh, how do they mobilize? I mean, I think right now, like where you put your money and where you put your energy matters a lot, mm-hmm. right? So I think putting your money, you know, and 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 giving money to causes that you feel are moving the dial on the issues that you feel engaged in. Um, I also think women should be running in local elections, right? Like run for your school board, like get involved in local politics, know what the m- important ballot measures are, um, you know, and 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 I think that's like a really concrete thing that we can do. Um, and you know. We have a long fight ahead of us to kind of win back um, seats or even not even win back seats, like get some people on both sides that are not just dogmatic in their politics, but actually there to work and like move policy forward. Um, But I also think like educating yourself on policies and their implications. I just came from podcast taping with this amazing woman, um, Pamela Merritt, who's an organizer in St. Louis, Missouri. And she was like, I am tired of talking about these like celebrity politicians. Like I want to talk about policy and I want us as women, as Americans to get like obsessed with policy and like know the ins and outs and be like, no, I'm voting for this policy. Like who cares who's attached to it? Well, you know know who loves policy? Donald Trump. He's so wonky. (laughs) Um, So I think we're on a a great path. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, Uh, Samita. It was really, really a pleasure uh, to have you in the office. Good luck with the book tour. October 4th, we'll be at the New York Public Library um, doing a big panel with a bunch of amazing people. Very cool. Awesome. I'll be first in line. Uh, Thank you so much (laughs) for coming. Thank you. Oh, my God, Hita, we had a conversation about feminism, and we did not— pull each other's hair out no. or like take off our earrings or scratch and, each other's yeah. eyes out this kind of felt like therapy yeah I feel a really like a lot of relief right oh now my God, I feel great we should go um, eat french fries after every episode I would love that Heatha I'm really excited to do this every week with you I am too babe I'm pumped Our composer for the amazing, I love this song so much. The first time I listened to it, I cried. I, like I actually cried. Yeah. Um, Miles Dean, he's amazing. It, there are some men who are great. Some men are great. Some men are great. Miles Dean is one of them. I want to also give a shout out to all of the people at Vox Media who have like made this podcast oh my happen. God. From like the designers to the graphic. Seriously, it, the, high five to know, Vox people, Media. Wow. Vox Media has killed it. Um, and we are so appreciative. The executive producers of Divided States of Women are David Goodman, Heatha Herzog, Nishat Kurwa, and me, Liz Plank. And the creator and executive producer of Divided States of Women is Liz Plank.